This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. I grew up in an Italian mafia family where, you know, it was basically all I knew from childhood, just raised in it and around it. And it was just like my life was good fellas, but real. Um, starting as a kid, and then I was introduced to this life of crime and bending the rules and gray area and stuff very young. And that just came up. And I looked, that's when I saw the blood pumping out of where I got stabbed, you know, right in the bottom half of my lung. And I stuck a finger in there just to see you know, how deep it was. And I just so stuck it in there, went right all in and buried my finger. And I'm like, oh, no. I got real lightheaded at that time. And I was like, man, if I pass out, I'm dead. And I'm going to bleed to death. And uh, I just wrapped my my hands around his throat and just tried to crush everything that's in it. And I did. And blood was squirting out of his nose and his mouth. He's gagging, trying to fight, thrashing. I got him pinned to the freaking concrete right in the middle. That bird. You can die today or you can live. You can make the money back. But if I pull the trigger, it's game over. They all they all fold up. Doing like 120 in a high-speed chase on on I-94. Just flying, dude. And the cops were pulled back. When you get going that fast, they call off the chase. So, and I was able to put like a mile distance on them. They had the whole expressway blocked off. All I seen behind me is a wall of flashing lights. It's quiet. And then like, there's like 12 cops at that big desk. And I'm yelling. I said, I'm going to kill your wife and kids. So just so you know, remember me. I won't be, I'll be back 10, 12 years. I'll see you again. None of them said nothing. And I walked about five steps towards him before he even realized I had a gun in my hand. (laughs) And then he like dove in the front seat and I just started lighting him up. Pop, 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 pop. But yeah, so I got even on that tip. Welcome everybody to the interview. I am interviewing Gunnar Lindblom right now, and he's a cool-ass dude. We've been talking here for a minute, and you guys are definitely going to enjoy this episode. But for those of you who do not know who Gunnar is... I'm going to go ahead and let him explain, but his story is one of the wildest, and the best part is that he came out on top at the end of it, and obviously we'll get all into that later, man, but Gunner, man, feel free to uh, introduce yourself, dude. What's up? That, you left that pretty ambiguous. You mean, I could be anybody. I could, now I could say, well, I'm an, ex, <laughs> I'm an ex-CI agent, um, what I did specialize in was <laughs> killing people from far with various poisons and blah, but that's not the case. So I grew I grew up in a part of my life that everybody finds interesting this part. But I'm more than that. And I was a lot more than that. But I grew up in an uh, Italian mafia family where, you know, it was basically all I knew from childhood. Just raised in it and around it. And it was just like my life was good fellas, but real. Um, starting as a kid. And then little things, you know, at first, I'm really taking this one back. But I remember I couldn't hang around and play, play with some kid. And I asked why. Said my mom said because your family's in the mafia or you're in the mafia, and somehow I knew what that was. So I don't. I remember asking 
somebody. I'm sure I did at some point. Asked my uncle, like, what's the mafia? And he told but because my uncle Pete was like my older brother. We all lived together in the same house. And he was 12 years older than me. And just, you know, at once I got to be like eight or 10 years old, you know, he, he thought it was just a little sidekick and taking me around. But anyway, but I was really, I was real young with the, with the mafia thing, probably, you know, four or five years old. So you notice these things and then you notice the way people treat your family is different than the people treat other people. And I paid that. I was super perceptive kid, by the way. So I was always like observing everything. I never missed nothing. And my dad used to say that was, I had some special gift because I'd walk and say, dad, you see that kid's missing his finger? And he's like, what guy? I mean, the one guy, he had no finger. And, you know, and then he's like, no. And then you see him, the guy later, man, the guy has a finger. You're right. Anyway, so I was observing and I could see people. There's a place in Detroit called Easter Market. It's like Detroit's little Italy. It's kind of the epicenter of mob activity. It was back, you know, from maybe the 40s all the way up to, I mean, there still still is, but but a lot of the the businesses that's sold and or moved farther out in the suburbs, you know, mob guys, they don't want to drive down the hood, you know, because it's nice where the market is, nice. And it really expanding down there. But you got to drive through 10 miles of ghetto to get to it. Usually you're on the expressway, so it's no big deal. But, I mean, if you have to go get some gas, it ain't worth it. People get robbed, people get shot, people get killed. They just come back. And then uh, I would go around with my grandpa or my, my uncles when I was a little kid. And then I would see people, how they, my grandpa would be received differently. You know, I pay attention to everybody, and you see these guys, you know, shake this guy's hand like this or say, hey, how you doing, Frank, or how you doing that, that. But when it was my grandpa, they'd shake his hand with two hands and go, hey, somebody be there. It's great to see you, Bison. I give him a half hug. <laughs> and so, what can I do for you today? Anything you got, everything I got, you know, there's no good here, blah, 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 blah. And they treat him like he was special. I paid attention to it. I mean, I got a million stories like that, man. I could go on and on. I was walking through the, the auto show, Detroit Auto Show, the biggest auto show in the world. And and it was my grandpa, my uncle, and my cousin, and my sister. And Tommy Hearns, a boxer, world champion boxer, like saw my grandpa and yelled, Mr. Toko, Mr. Toko. And he ran over to shake his hand. And I'm standing there like, damn, this is Tommy Hearns coming over to us to save my grandpa's hand. And then right at that moment, while that, about a minute later after that happened, the famous um, reporter from Detroit, Carmen Harlan, she came over to my grandpa, Mr. Toko. I'm like, they all wanted to talk to him. And so, so naturally, I, you know, exposed to these things when you're young. A guy, I, man, I mean, there's a million stories. My, my grandpa took me to meet the, the owner of the Detroit Tigers on my 10th birthday. And uh, we were on top of the players' parking structure across the street from Tiger Stadium. And the owner, um, he comes flying up on his helicopter. Anyways, he, my grandpa arranged for me to meet him on top of the roof on my birthday, which was opening day of the Tiger season. I was a huge um, fan of the Tigers. I played Little League, so that baseball was a huge part of my life. My grandpa took me to meet the owner, and he landed on a freaking helicopter on the roof. I, I, I didn't care about none of that. I couldn't. I was too young to understand any of that whole, like, you know, who owns what. The guy owns How's somebody own a team? That's kind of, it's impossible. Probably four or five million dollar helicopter, like today would be four or five million bucks. Anyways, so around age 14, I started getting, uh, in trouble, man. I was always, not, not that I was getting in trouble. Excuse me, I got to take that back. I was constantly in trouble all my life from kindergarten. The second day of kindergarten, I smashed a dude with a giant, like like a two by four, with these building blocks inside kindergarten, and we were all building things. We, you know, that was our assignment to go over there and build something on these building blocks. And this big freaking dude, I wish I told the story before. I'm like this big, like six year Luca Bazzi kid was picking on everybody and taking their stuff. And I'm, I've been there two days. And I'm watching this. Finally get, I snap. And I mean, blanked out. I grabbed a, like this two-by-four building block, and I started pounding on wailing him across the head. Boom, boom, boom. I got suspended for, for beating down this freaking six-year-old Luca Brasi. And by the way, he was 
he was like years older than the rest of us. He he had failed. He's like a big oaf, and they had brought him back a couple back to King Iron for like two years. The kid was twice our size. That's why I ring I pounded his head with a two four, and I got suspended. That was basically set the stage for the rest of my life in terms of school. I was always get suspended for fighting and trouble. I mean, just and, and I had average probably just for suspension, you know, probably six, seven times a year for fighting, and that in a couple more for just other you know, general bad behavior, and and, that, and all the way up freaking. I got expelled at 15 years old. I got expelled out of the high school that I should have went to. It was, it was tough on me because I all my boys and all the girl, all the girls were there, and I went straight to the streets. All I did is got kicked out, expelled from school, at age 15. But anyway, so 15 years old, what do you think I'm going to do? What do you think I'm going to do? I'm kicked out of school. My dad works all day. I'm already selling weed, by the way. So I have a moped, and I take to the streets, and I just start selling dope. And I had this cousin, Johnny, he was from Gross Point. He would come around. He'd get dropped off, want to hang out with me, or I, he eventually got a moped, and he came down to my house. It was kind of a long drive, but he didn't care. just down Jefferson, like freaking eight miles or something. And uh, we sell sell weed. To the, we sold weed to the crack dealers in the, in the ghetto. We, I mean, yeah, it was a crazy story. He carried this big pistol with out and open, and it was kind of like had my back. They called him John Wayne because of that. But anyways, that's the crap that we we're doing. And, and coke too. People, people were like, you know, can you get some coke? I like, yeah. I go to this plug I had. I'm like, you know, and I cut it with um with these uh, things called mini things. I smash them down and just. People bring me stolen crap all the time because, again, if you're kicked out of school at 15, the only people left in the streets in my age bracket are comics, scumbags, thieves, losers, you know, drug addicts. You know, it's all I know at this point. They're the only people I know, but they're all low level, nothing. But they bring me stolen good and I traded for weed. And then I started taking the stolen goods, selling them in my uncle's friend's pawn shop. And it escalated into a whole big scam that lasted basically my whole life from like 15, 16 years old all the way until I got locked up. I had a fence for stolen merch. So I, at one point I had an operation where we, had, we were able to, a guy who worked for ADT Alarms was able to give us a passcode to override the thing. It told us how to fry the thing and how, and so we could go pull the thing off, connect a couple of wires and get a, get a, like a battery to do it, boom, and fry it out. But the alarm wouldn't go off. So we, then we could go break the house. I never broke into houses. I got went into once, one time, but, but then I would wait out the street with a, with a scanner, with a police scanner. And these guys would go in there and ransack houses and, and get, you know, it wasn't like we get a lot of electronic stuff. Like they take a couple, they found them like a nice high end, like camcorder or camera or something like that. So we were after this jewelry and money, guns too. So that's what they did. I'd come out with jewelry and money. They always said they didn't find any cash or if they did, it was only like 500 bucks or something. I'm like, yeah, okay. Big giant houses in Ghost Point. You know, we're going in these houses. I know there's cash there. They find in safes that are open. We even stole a couple safes. Uh, a couple of times, there's like a big safe that's big enough to kind of carry out square one floor one. And it was so heavy. And I remember at four o'clock in the morning, man, and they needed my help. So I went up on the lawn and, and there's three of us. It was like a, a movie of like dumb and dumb, dumb ass, you know, convict. We're all three of us are stumbling along, carrying this big ass freaking safe across the front lawn. You know, and we throw it in a freaking car and the trunk lid don't shut. But we got away with it. But um, I mean, that's just the crap that I was doing in my life was always something like that. And fortunately, I was a scumbag. I was a freaking lazy ass. I didn't want to work. Uh, I was taught when I was very young that, you know, there's always an angle. My Uncle Pete taught me that, you know, my Uncle Pete started teaching me about La Cosa Nostra. He started telling me who we were and who the, the, the powers that be were. And I was shocked to hear that my Uncle Jack was was the boss. 
and he'd been around my grandpa. I'd see him, you know, not super frequently, but you know, as much as I paid attention, I, I'd seen him long. I can remember, you know what I'm saying? Kind of a reticent guy. Um, I want to, he used to smoke too and sit there and smoke. I'm not sure about that, but I'm pretty sure I remember as a kid, you know, sitting and smoking at the table anyways, didn't know. And then all these other uh, characters, that's all I can explain them as characters would come by. My grandpa's Goombadis. Goombadis is the best man. And you can have technically only one at your wedding, but they all call each other Goombadis, which in New York they just say Goomba. Well, these guys that are coming around, my grandpa, are, are big shot, high-level mob guys, high-level. So, you know, the top guys in the thing. And they're all family or cousins. They've known each other since freaking 1940. You know what I'm saying? They... Oh, they're all boys. My grandpa's a bookie. He's a he's a layoff bookie, meaning the guys who can't balance their books before the game, they call a layoff quickly and say, I got, I got 20 against the spread, 20,000 bucks, 50,000 bucks against the spread. He's like, you know, I need a balance. So that, and then he'd say, okay, I'll take it. There's a cutoff line, which is like a half an hour before the normal helicopter line, which is an hour, because he needs a half an hour to get all the money and, and everything set so he can call people in Las Vegas, his friends in Vegas, and say, because they take all bets, so they they take all action and boom, doesn't matter now who wins because the whole, they collect ten percent juice, the vig or whatever. So they don't really matter who wins, as long as they get it all balanced for the game. So my grandpa did, and he's the twenty thirty book he dealt with. And we, when I get older, I would go with him on his rounds to go collect, and nobody ever gave him a problem too, man, which is crazy, dude. My my, like he he'd been dealing with some of these bookies and stuff like this for twelve, five, thirty, forty years, you know. The lower level book that I'd eventually start collecting for, for these Chaldeans, these couple of Jew guys, they're all Tony's, um, Jack Colonis guys. You know, they're like sometimes people think they can get away with not paying, and they or, or they would stumble, like stall and disappear, whatever. And they'd call me, and they call me Bloodhound, no joke. Tony Jack started calling me the Bloodhound. He's like, yeah, you like the freaking Bloodhound, man. This guy. So the people kind of saying, hey man, so and so told me, to, you know, get hold of you, call you the Bloodhound. Says you're, you're the best at finding somebody who don't want to be found. I'm like, Pretty bad. I said, Yeah, I mean, how much? And they tell me, All right, so they're needed to collect five grand. I'm thinking, Yeah, I mean, it's going to give me 500 bucks, but you know, sometimes it'd be a little more, sometimes it'd be a little less. Anyways, at the end of the day, these my grandpa's book, book these older guys, they were just, you know, he just goes, him there, being them, he'd give an envelope, boom, that's done. And uh, so he did rounds like he would have never got all the money at like, he didn't go boom, 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 all one day and had 50,000 bucks in his pocket or whatever. He go one place a day, and he started getting older. His eyes went bad. And, you know, I'm gonna keep in mind. My uncle had introduced me to this stuff, just crime, when I was about 14. I wanted this bike really bad, and I asked him to give me money. He had a nice new Cadillac, a pocket full of money, big gold chain, good looking girls around him all the time. He was kind of a tough guy. All the all the boys looked up to him, and he had a pretty girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But guy's 12 years older than me. I want to be like him, but I'm just saying. I said. Uncle Pete, man, buy me this bike. I really want this bike, man. And mom only giving me a hundred dollars. I was getting into the freestyling, the tricks, doing the tricks. And he um said, Man, I'm buying you a bike. I was like, get out of here. I said, Come on, I see you got money. He's like, I'll tell you what to do, go get your cousin Johnny. I go get Johnny, bring him back. And he says, Johnny, go steal Alonzo his bike from Gross Point North or Gross Point South and took 50 bucks. Johnny said, 50 bucks? He's like, Hell yeah. So he goes and so I come back the following week. Because I was like, I wasn't living with my grandparents anymore. I just went back. I just moved to a new place with my mother and sister. So I've been out of the neighborhood for like a year. 
And Johnny was a bad kid to begin with, really bad. We used to, when I hung around him all, when I was younger, because Johnny was an insane kid, old troublemaker, just like me, really. So he goes and steals a bike. A week later, I come back. He's got bikes. Not the exact bike they wanted, but close enough. Was, I want a hard master. He got me a hard sport. I don't care. Even if 50 bucks, I got to keep 50 bucks. Man, that's how I'm out. But another time, we, we, I want as many bikes. Super bad. In fact, this is before the bike. I said, Uncle Pete, man, <clears throat> I want this mini bike so bad. I'm buying this mini bike. He's like, I'm not giving you a freaking mini bike, man. Get the frick out of here, man. Tell, I'll tell you what to do. So we get these Jerry Lewis cans. You get the donations. You stand in front of the store. Would you like to donate to Jerry Lewis? Muscular dystrophy. He's like, get that can from 7 Eleven. Go stand in front of the store, you know, rattle it, get some money. That's how you pay for your mini bike because you can open them and steal, steal money. I do that in front of 7 Eleven. I only make like 20 bucks. Ain't enough. Well, I jump on my bike. Again, I'm nine years old when I'm 10 or 11. I drove like five miles on my bike, literal five miles. That's a long way to go on a bike when you're, you know, 11 years old. Stood up from this Kmart for three hours. Would you like to don't fill the can like four times? Drove home with this big bag of cash and change wrapped on my, my my handlebars. Got home, 140 bucks. Cool, I'm in the game. I ended up getting the mic for 95 bucks, and I loved it. It was crazy. And nobody asked me where I got the money though. I did, I think, but I, I like my all all my aunts and uncles and stuff would send me money on my birthday and Christmas and Easter. That's how I made it. How I got money. So every Christmas, birthday, and Easter, I'd have like 300 bucks. Between what everybody gets, my grandparents, everybody. grandparents give you 50 or 100, you give, aunt give you like 20. So I had money around, some at least. And that money would last me months because I don't know, what did I just didn't do nothing with it. But anyway, the bike, moral of the story, like, I was introduced to this life of crime and bending the rules and gray area and stuff very young. And that just came up. When I was 15, 16 years old, I got kicked out of school, started selling drugs, I started selling steroids, and I started working out. And I really wasn't doing steroids. Everybody thought I was because I was working out. But I did a little bit, just like very little, not enough to do any. I don't know. I just had spooked by it. And then around you know, 18, 18, I get busted for selling steroids. I go to jail, do my first little jail bit. Then I go out and live with my grandparents again. I get right back into business. I'm... I think I was on probation, and I'm right back in uh, selling weed and steroids and Tylenol threes. I know they're actually two twenty twos. If anyone's ever heard of those, they're a little bit weaker than Tylenol three, but you can buy them in Canada. Well, I started with a bunch of Tylenol threes, like like five thousand of them. Then I went to Canada with getting these two twenty twos, and you can sell them for like you know two for a dollar or something. But on twenty one, I started. I got a bunch of. Ch- I mean, I'm skipping over like eighty percent of the stuff to get into, but I will say, I um. I got, I was facing an ATF indictment for extorting this dude out of a gun collection. And they were hot on my ass. We got word through my, our people because we always kind of have friends. And they were like, yo, this sealed indictment and you're the, the main, you know what I mean, suspect or whatever. So I had to run. I'm a friend in New York and lived in New York for a couple of years. How was that going for like somebody with your family? How was it traveling outside of state to other cities and stuff like that? So I went right to work as soon as I got there within like a week. I called my uncle and said, do you have any friends here? And then he called a couple of people. Of course, New York and the Detroit mob families are very tied together. Not in the point where like, like very, but there are several very strong alliances that were need. Actually, daughters married to guys from New York. New York guys, daughters married Detroit's guys and vice versa. So like that happened like maybe three, four times. And these are high level dudes, really high level. So now there's always been this conduit from Detroit to New York. Where they're uh, they're friends, but New York New York bosses and the capos, the low level guys, they think Detroit's probably nothing. They don't even 
they don't even know nothing. They have no idea that Detroit is arguably the most powerful, single most powerful mafia family in the country, the most profitable. Depending, maybe a New York family has it by sheer numbers, but they're, the way they operate is so much different. It's it's you can't operate that way in Detroit because like, all the bravado. Just putting yourself on blast so you so the people around you know that you're in the mob is is basically forbidden in Detroit, and you can get killed for it. So that's 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 the difference. Um, when I got to New York. I did get get you know, the, the guy named Vinny. He met me and put me to work doing some odds and ends, and I have. I, I've shared a couple of stories on my YouTube channel about that um, and written about them in my Limb Chronicles, stories that I write for National Crime Syndicate. That's like at one point they were trying to muscle out these Dominicans off of Avenue in, Bro- in Brooklyn. And and I had my job was to go warn, not warn, tell the Dominican that you have to you know stop selling dope on this avenue. And, of course, I literally thought I could be dead because I walked right into his headquarters and you got two, three guys in there. And I got one guy with me and because he spoke Spanish. I needed a... a interpreter so the guy with me his name was angel he interpreted to this dominican i thought they could kill me there but they didn't but they a couple of the guys says you know thanks but i think because i said you're gonna sell our dope on this block or you don't see dope that's just the way it works you know and then the only thing he said to me he's like no thanks i got my own plug and i said okay that's that's what you want me to tell him and he kind of said see i said all right and they found that dude dead like a week later him and girlfriend bullet holes in the head and lit, lit him on fire. They burned him to ashes. And like, not, you know, set him on fire, douse him with gasoline and douse him, let him burn. So I'm like, yeah, it was, it's so, but when I got to New York, the guys, they didn't, again, like I said, they didn't kind of think Detroit, they didn't even know anything about Detroit. They thought it's only, you know, mafia was only in New York and then they couldn't start for them to gather that there's another families, there's other families out there that, you know, it's the same thing, the different culture, that's for sure. Much quieter and much more, you know, compartmentalized but um but it was cool dude put me to work and i made a bunch of money in new york and some crazy stuff and i got i, I the atf thing the, the witness the original witness well my uncle and a couple of friends of ours were able to um convince him to recant his statement that i was the one that pressured him into doing this or at gunpoint by threat of violence made him give me these guns he said he told them now he was a gambling addict and that he got behind and made up the story that I extorted him for the guns to save his ass, you know, from, you know, whatever. whatever. And then he went back and told him that he made it all up, whatever. So they dropped, they dismissed, yeah, the, uh, throughout the indictment. And I was able to come home. I was homesick anyways. I wanted to be home. But um, <clears throat> anyways, it was after I started driving around for my grandpa. It's kind of how I got into the um, ingratiated to the upper levels bosses and stuff. It was, was my grandpa's eyes were going bad. And he started crashing into stuff all the time. And I'd be driving with him because he always said, come on, let's go to the market. Or let's go let's go to town. Let's do. And then we'd drive around and go see what was going by. He'd stop at like five places. That's the thing. He stopped. Oh, yeah, I got to see my Gumbadi Pauly. Or I got to see Sammy. I forgot. And again, I, at this point, I've been expelled from school for three or four years. I've been in freaking, I got expelled from school like 50 times for fucking in my life. Um, I've gone to youth hall twice. I've gone to jail one time now for you know five months these guys my uncles and these my guys that all know this they're all you know, they're they're watching they see stuff they notice they hear it and it's just they pay attention they say hey pete i you know how's alonzo doing ah, it's so good man he's getting jail he's blah, blah, blah. so they're watching and they're thinking eh, he's gonna be one of us it's too bad that he's got his daddy's name 
because if he had his mom's name, then you know he would definitely be one of our. Didn't matter. I freaking migrated into the thing. I didn't do I migrate towards mob life or anything, so I could be in the mob. I was told I never could be a full member. I was told is you know because you're what's called the fetto half breed. You mean you just can't do it. So it's only you know, thing you'd ever do is be a foot soldier you know, or associate or whatever. I said my uncle said foot soldier, and I knew what that meant. That meant there's a lot of guys who aren't made who have. They're super highly respected, super highly feared. I could go on. I could give you a list of names of guys that that are that aren't made and are everybody as dangerous, feared, and respected as um, made guys, and more than some made guys. But you know the difference. The made guys can't be touched. You know what I'm saying? You, you disrespect one of them, and you you be, be killed. Now, like the Jewish dudes, I'm thinking over a couple of Lebanese dudes, and all these guys, and Chaldean guys, um, which are the Arabs that live in Detroit. They're Christian Arabs. And they work, they're very symbiotic, the, the Chaldeans and the Mafia. Like, they have their own mob, Chaldean Mafia. Those guys are super feared. I'm not saying I was on their level ever. I'm just saying me, personally, I, I got a lot of respect from these guys. The main reason was my grandpa would take me to the headquarters, and they'd hear stories about me on the street. Because these guys are super gossipy, too. I don't know if you know that about, about old Dago wise guys. Oh, man, the, the old Dago wise guys, especially if they speak Sicilian, which all these guys did. They will sit around and speak in Sicilian, man, because they, the, first of all, they love using the old language. Second of all, they think that the FBI, don't, you know, you know, can't tell what they're saying. If they're, you know, they're old men, they don't know any, but they never, they can't decipher it. And it's true, unless you have a really good interpreter. Sicilians who talk fast, you got to get really be tough, but you always could get an interpreter. But anyways, that's what they do, man. They sit around and they play bocce ball. They would play penny poker. They would play dice games, you know, and they never bet with each other much, a few bucks, but they were just doing it for social, you know, and I'd pop up with my grandpa in these like back rooms of connected to a restaurant or a car lot or places where they have little, little headquarters set up. Lots of times there are warehouses in the market and they have a little inside area, the little table set up, some chairs, a poker table, just up in the corner, you know, there's a refrigerator in there just to, where to hang out. That's your old gangsters. And I'd show up, and they'd be like, yo, I heard that you freaking busted up Nino's place the other day. What happened with that? I heard he wasn't too happy. I laughed. Nino's all mad. I said, uh, yeah. I said, this freaking idiot was arguing with his girlfriend and started yelling, talking he was going to beat her ass. I told him, hey, chill out, man. That's a woman. He said, F you. I threw a chair at me, so we freaking bum-rushed him and his boys and smashed shit out of him in, the, in, the, in Nicky's Pizza. And um, they're all laughing, but I'm telling them the story. As I'm telling them this story, I'm getting real animated, jumping around like I'm smashing chairs, swinging at chairs, ducking chairs, being thrown at me. You know, I had to grab the body, start pounding like this, man. And they're just laughing. They're all smiling, and they love it. Because then he's like, ah, I remember the time me and Tommy did this. Man, we were coming back from the blah, blah, blah. I mean, this guy did this. And, and now they're telling me all these their own stories. They're all like, man. So we bonded over these freaking war stories, which I thought was pretty cool. I think my grandpa wasn't too happy about it because he wanted to see me like mature up and and maybe go to college he knew i was real smart and he's but he'd look at me like eh, they like him you know it's likely he's gonna end up like them so at one point a guy named tony jacqueline who was real dangerous real powerful dude man he's the street boss of the family he's probably the baddest dude in the family i mean even the boss was scared of him to be honest with you in my opinion now the boss could always override anybody and say he's got to go and kill him but i mean i really think if somebody if the boss would have ordered just for some reason because that's how much uh people like tony on the street which is fine tony i'm not saying they didn't get along i'm just saying he was a bad mofo. He's, they, FBI believes he's responsible for up to like 40 murders. 60, I think, between him and his brother. These are bad dudes. Fuck. But, 
Yeah, I know. This really bad. And they have never been able to get them. Dude, you got to listen to the, the my YouTube channel. And you got to go to episode the Carlton hit. Because doing like a, a little sub show called, you know, same thing. Um, um, that was a reformed gangster show. But the whole thing about the Detroit Mafia. Because people wanted it. They had been asking. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll do this. So start back at the beginning, like like 10 episodes back of it. And then we talked about the Ruth Carlton on the second show, which is a famous hit, which is you'll never believe. But there was a guy turned to be a guy decided he was going to flip, testify against these mob guys. And one of them was Tony. So he said, okay, well, I, but I'm not going to witness protection for a couple of days because I got to get my, you know, all my things right, my business and whatever, whatever. So he's got a FBI take him like an, they basically two bodyguards take him and they wherever he wants to go they go they got him in a hotel they bring him to the ritz carlton hotel on a certain day where it just so happens that tony Acoloni is having an anniversary party and the entire detroit mob hierarchy is there like 200 people 200 freaking people you know most of them mob guys and they're all partying downstairs well during the the shift break for the fbi's they had the guard on this dude. What the hell is his name, man? But during the shift change, two cops leave. Say, listen, you know, the next shift to be here. Or what they told them. The next shift be here in 10 minutes. You'll be good. During that 10-minute period, while old mob's downstairs partying it up, an assassin comes into the room, slits his throat, takes his daughter, his, like, three-year-old kid and the, and the girlfriend or his wife, puts pillowcases over the head, ties them, oh, ties them up, pillowcases on, put them in the back room, and then... Uh, flips his throat. One of the assassins, with a B, yo, want to do this B or something like that? And anyways, the FBI investigated on this, packed it down to a freaking some dude named started with a B, and then that guy was shot and killed and found in the trunk of a car. So basically, think about that. They're in a, the FBI ha- are in possession of this freaking rat, and in a matter of three days, basically what happened? They are already in the, the party for anniversary party for Tony Jack. Tony Jack just told them. Put him in, put him upstairs. Give me 10, you know, give me 10 minute window. I'll have it done. And then he went to one of these freaking dudes. There's another the hit team was a black dude because he wanted to keep it, you know, looking that way. So two two black come in and uh and slit his throat. And and then anyways, that that thing about that. And now that the shift change comes back, you know, eight minutes later, and he's he's dead and his wife and kid are hogged in the back. I'm just saying that's the type of crap that has happened in the Detroit mob and happens with these guys. So anyways, Tony, one day I told him all my stories about fighting and stuff. He thought I was a tough guy. He said I reminded him of him. At so I didn't even know what a compliment that was at the time. It was like, eh, it's an old man. That's all he was to me. They're all just old uncles, frumpy old uncles. I didn't look at them as like revered mafia bosses or whatever. Man, some of them were were ranked and they had some extra status and the way people treated them and respected them. But I didn't care because I'm like, why are you guys kissing this freaking guy? You know, fat, dumpy old man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, can't whoop my ass. Got a gun to shoot me. I got a gun to shoot him. I mean, what do you, what the hell? I slept shit out of this old man. In my mind, that's what I'm saying. Because I didn't understand how it works. And you never do when you're young, you know? But uh, there's some people who are just like study the coast and Ostra like it's their like baseball. And they they know they might just you know know that me I was a wild card. I was a freaking wild child, so I would act wild. So Tony asked me. I knew Tony was respected. I knew the ones that I had to really kiss their ass, you know. But I wouldn't kiss their ass like everybody else. I just like hey, I doing you know respectfully sometimes shake hand. But I, some of these guys would kiss their ass so bad as like they'd almost kiss the pinky ring, and and in some cases they did. But anyways. 
my grandpa takes me to see Tony or where were we? No, Tony was at somebody else's place and we show up and Tony's freaking he had me go punch some well, he wanted me to punch some kid in the face who was picking on my cousin, but I never did punch. I just warned the kid stay off him and then and that's what happened. And then after that he had me um smash some dude who I'm just I'm trying to th- I'm thinking the story. He had to smash some dude who is Gumar was, he had a Gumar his girlfriend and some her drunk ex boyfriend showed up and smacked her around and smashed, uh, supposedly smacked the kids too. So Tony calls me in the morning, like seven o'clock in the morning. Listen, I want you, can you handle this? Can you handle this? I said, Yeah, I handle it. So I ended up going over there with my boy Dario and knocked at the door real quiet. And she answered and she, she walked into the back. Dude still passed out. So I grabbed him by the hair and essentially just beat the shit out of him. I'm, I'm kind of I'm ashamed to see something like that. That's horrible. But yeah, the woman beating drunk, so at the time I didn't care. I didn't have any mercy on him. I had this big nugget ring, and it just pounded his face in it. The ring ended up having a hunk of his nose in it afterwards. I let it dry up, and just my boys would laugh at it. They thought it was funny. Dude's face and I was stuck in my ring. So, But I ended up pounding him and dry, dragging him out of there by his hair, all bloody, and, and threw him down the stairs and sent him on his way. And so she, the girl, told Tony, she's like, I don't know who that guy was that you sent to my house. It was for no freaking gain. He came straight up in there and overized my ex and slapped the shit out of him and said, if you, you know, if you ever, you know, I, he said, who are you? Who are you? I said, I'm the guy, I said, I'm the boogeyman. I'm the guy who comes when you put your hands on a woman. And he, and he gets in his van. He's like, look what you did to my face. And I said, man, the next time you put your hands on her, you need a surgeon to put your mother effing face back on. And get the fuck out of here. And he did. And, he, and I'd see her. You know, for years later, she would always thank me. I mean, I'd see her here and there in a gas station or something. She'd be like, yeah, thank you for doing that. Like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Doing the right thing. But I was really doing it for Tony. So, anyway, that's how I got ingratiated with this guy's pony. I did a lot of crazy stuff that I shouldn't have done and even pissed off Tony. I scabbed his poker players. You know, he didn't like that. And even I kind of circumvented him around. The, you know, I was supposed to get you through him to collect for the freaking loan sharks and, and the bookies. And he would get a cut. But he wouldn't give me dick for all the work I was doing. So, I started just going straight to the Jews and the and the Chaldeans and and have them pay me he never said nothing about that really but he's just like uh, because he, he didn't care he loved me but there's a couple things i times i, I pissed him out pretty good and he I didn't talk to me for a while and then uh i got in a couple things i did i got in trouble uh i told off told off i, I it's, that's a long story i won't get into it but i was in the, the room with tony belly and um who was the underboss and, and tony and i think frank you know i'm not tony's bodyguard was in the room big fat dude tall dude and I said something slick, but it didn't mean it the way I said it. And Tony started laughing and called me crazy. But if he didn't say it, like, you know, if I, like Tony was about to take me serious, like, you know, be really serious. Tony started laughing. He's like, this guy is funny busting our balls or whatever. So nothing happened. He saved my ass that time. And another time I, I basically threatened to kill him. They do. I just, I just, I just told this story on my YouTube channel. That's a fucking pretty wild one, dude. Because this game was getting long, but the, on the back end was that that dude Tony, which is the boss of Pepe. Pepe's the guys I I threatened to kill and burn his business down because he owed me twelve thousand bucks for a contracting job I did, and I felt like he was just trying to get over on me. That's why he gave it to me from the beginning. Now, I'm gonna get these kids, haha. You know, I'm gonna have them do the job, give them half down, give them confidence, and then afterwards they do it, and I say f you because what do you know? You know, what I'm saying I'm a freaking made guy. They ain't gonna do nothing to me, and that's basically what he said. And that's why I said, man, I'll f him for and kill you. And I told that to Tony. So Tony was trying to put a contract out on I me. Mean, he was going around. This is a heavy hitting wise guy, man. He, a, a capo, you know, a captain. And he's saying, I, I want to freaking have this kid killed. 
you know, for disrespecting us like that. And nobody would take the contract. They're all saying, no, nah, no. Nah. Not that they were that scared of me. Well, yeah, it was there. Frankly, they were. They were like, dude, if, if you miss and this guy finds out, he's going to come. You know, he's going to kill you, motherfuckers. You know what I'm saying? He ain't the one. That's basically <laughs> what they said. That's exactly what Tony said. You know, Tony Jackaloni told them, if you don't kill this kid on your first try, he's going to kill. He's going to come back and kill all you. I mean, that's just how he's how he thinks. So, and they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, everybody was saying the same thing. They're like, nah, I don't forgive because then I got to deal with the Tokos and maybe Tony Jack. So, Tony Jack found out that the other Tony was trying to put a contract on me and then called a sit down with my grandpa and him. And they were old paisans. They'd known each other. The, the, the Tony and, the, and my grandpa, they've been friends for like 25 years, 30 years, whatever it was. And Tony, that's when Tony Jack, during this meeting, stood up and said, this guy freaking screwed your boy, Pepe, screwed this freaking Alonzo over. And he were like, yeah, but he's not a friend of ours. What are you saying? Which means he's not a ma- made dude. He's not a full mafia member. He's ain't a friend of ours. So, so what? It's all in the game. He said, no, it's not all in the game. This is Pete's grandson. And he's a friend. The kid's a friend of mine. And now he's, you're kicking up all kinds of problems, dust for something he did. Pay the guy. And that's what he said. You know, this guy if gets back to him that you're trying to contract a hitter to get him. He's going to, he's going to hit you. He's going to walk in your freaking place with a freaking AR 15 you know, unload. He said a shotgun is what he said. Cause my dad was a gun dealer. It's a long story. And he said, you're going to, he said, he's going to walk in with a shotgun and blow your effing head off. And then that'll be that. And then now we lose all you guys. So we had this debate, you know, in the room and my grandpa's just sitting there listening. And he basically told him eventually, he's like, listen, pay him, have Pepe pay him the money. You know, let make this go away. Tony did. It was basically an order. Tony basically told him, listen, Pay have Pepe paying the freaking money he owes him and the story. We ain't, you know, not gonna kick up dust, not with him over this. And Tony liked me too, because I earned money for him. <laughs> I made him a bunch of money. Not a ton, but some. And that was I was a good guy to have. I was like a freaking pit bull. You know, if he needed something done, he'd send me to go find guys that couldn't be found, and I'd find them. And he and he called me uh, that's that's when he started calling me the bloodhound. Patsu Lapara means freaking crazy gunner, shotgun, crazy shotgun. So my what do what do you call me? And he liked to have me around, you know, having a guy like me around who's known tough guy who will get stuff done, you know, can be very dangerous to send me to go collect from anybody, man. They like, I was like I, the grim freaking reaper, you know what I'm saying? If I, if I showed up and they already knew like, I don't know, it's freaking, they sent him. No, because usually you know, they, for a lot of these people, it's such a small community too. You think Detroit, east side of Detroit, that would be this huge community, but it's not. It's relatively small. They're all the same people hang out at the same clubs. And they go to the same places. At least these, the type of people I'm talking about. And there is thou- hundreds of thousands, millions of people in Metro Detroit. But in your, like, my general area, east side, kind of everybody knows everybody. You know what I'm saying? The people who are supposed to know about, you know, that, they know. But the rest of the world don't. The rest of the world just, just don't. We, we just... We're just regular guys got businesses or we're working or all this or that. This is a bunch of another Italian kid. There's so many Italians in Metro Detroit. It's crazy. And I probably say it's probably 30 to 40% of the population is Italian, at least where I'm from, the East side area. I don't, yeah, it's a ton. It's, I, I guesstimate at least 400,000. Damn dude. So like, tell us about a time where some of the shit that you did came back. Cause I heard the story about how you got that scar on your head. And I was just sitting there, and I was, I was like, man, this dude got smashed with a fucking bat. He's just mad about it, you know? Like, it did not come out. He's just mad about it. Well, that, that was divine intervention, if you ask me. I mean, I just, I don't know why that, that incident had to happen. But I came close to death, man. And um, 
Hey, how long story is short story is is that I was going to pick up an ounce of dope, ounce an ounce of coke. Might have been heroin because I got them both. But anyways, an ounce of coke from my boy Lorenzo. Got it every day. Stupid. I should just bought a freaking kilo and got it over with. But I, you know, figured that way if I have it, somebody will freaking try to break in and steal it the same way I would. So it's better off for me to just buy a little at a time. Because if I found out somebody had a kilo in their house. I would nine times out of 10, just walk straight in with a pistol and say, give it to me. <laughs> That's it. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't wait and break in or nothing. I'd knock on the freaking door. They open the door. I put a pistol in their face and say, I need that. I need that bird. You can die today or you can live. You can make the money back. But if I pull the trigger, it's game over. They all, they all fold up. Anyway. So yeah, I, uh, I see my boy who's my dealer on the, on the, on the front lawn of this house. And it's just black dudes. There's three of them. It's my boy and his brother. No, and there's there's three of those guys and my boy and his brother. So there's five dudes, actually. And the one dude who lived there, apparently, jumped off his porch when he saw me come walking up. And he said, take your ass, punk ass across the street, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, yo, man, that's cool, man. These are my boys. Like, I don't give a F who you are. Take your bitch ass across the street. I said, hey, man, you're going to talk to me like that, bro. You don't even know me. And I'm trying to be cool here. And he's like, man, he, he starts walking towards me. He grabs a bottle off the porch, starts up 40 ounces, starts walking towards me. And I'm like, yeah, what's, what are you going to do with that? And, and Lorenzo this is a big black dude. I called Debo because I got lazy eye, big black dude. Who's my boy. He um, steps between us and, and he says, man, hold up, man. That white boy ain't the one. He can put you in the hospital, bro. EMS, he said. I'm putting you in EMS. He said, man, after that white boy, yada, yada, yada. So he comes, pushes past. I said, let him go, Lo. Let him go. I'm going to teach him just do a lesson today. So he starts circling around me. We're circling. I'm like posted up the fight. He's circling around with this bottle. I'm like, you know, like ducking my head and weaving. Like, what you going to do with that, man? You do nothing but make me mad with that, bro. He's going to need more than that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's a half four, half full 40. And at some point, he gets, he's real close to me. He like tries to smash me in the face with the bottle, but I duck it, hits me in the collarbone and bounces off, but don't break. It bounces off like the bottom must have hit it. Dang, because it hurt really bad. For like nine months, it was sore after that, bruised the bone. It bounces off, then goes in the street and breaks. And then at the same instant, I just like come from, you know, swing hard and look from, from my waist and boom, hit him in the jaw and knock him out. First punch. He just thought he had to take me out. I think he was drunk. And I knock him out and he goes flopping down on the ground. And I should have left it at that, but I decided I, I, I was angry. So I got on top of him and smashed him in the face four or five months, you know, bloodied him up real good. And then I left. And so later, later that day, I come back to see Lowe, who lives like three blocks down the, in that same street. And there's a abandoned house next to his house. There's a abandoned house across the street from his house. And there's a abandoned house two houses down. I still don't know where, which one they came from. But I pulled up in my Mustang. And my boy, you know, there's this other black dude, Lorenzo, hung around. And his name's Pat. Good dude. R.I.P. Died in a car accident. Ironically, somebody was running from the police in a high-speed chase and plowed into him and my boy, Sean, and killed them both instantly. It's crazy. Um, he was there. And he came out. He's like, man, you shouldn't have done that earlier. I'm like, done what? He's like, you know, what you did to old boy. I'm like, why the not? And he's like, you know, he, you know this guy's freaking crazy. He's like, what the hell am I supposed to do, man? He's like, yeah, we don't mess with him. We don't do, you know, he's, he said he's a freaking, he uses dope. And he's like, he's real unpredictable and freaking like, like, you know, crazy. I said, what do you want me to do? Guy comes down me with a freaking bottle and do something. So I knocked his bitch ass out, whatever. And he's like, yeah, but you didn't have to freaking do what you did after. I'm like, anyway, I don't care. And around that mo at that moment, while I'm talking, I'm leaning against the back of my car with him, but like in the street, I felt something just freaking 
clock me in the back of my head hard. Bang! I see stars. And it all happened so fast. I just kind of turned around like, what the frick was that? You know, I don't know what it was. A tr- branch fell out of the tree. Or I don't know. And I turned around. Dude was already had his, his second swing cocked and loaded. And he was coming straight to bam. Hit me right in the forehead, bro. Spun me around against my car. And I saw the the bat skipping down the street, the broken half. So I heard it. Dude, clink, 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 clink. So the dude tried to basically broke the bat over my head. So I just turned around and lunged at his throat and tried to kill him. That was it. I mean, with all my might, I was using my hands, you know, and pretty strong hands. I work out. I was a, a muscle head, so I was in really good shape, you know. Did bodybuilding shows around that time. And uh, I just wrapped my, my hands around his throat and just tried to crush everything that's in it, and I did. And blood was squirting out of his nose and his mouth. He's gagging, trying to fight, thrashing. I got him pinned to the freaking concrete right in the middle of the road. His boys start kicking me and punching me, trying to get me off. I won't let off. One of them goes, some, a bottle, and I'm just, I'm just basically trying to kill this dude. I'm saying it. I said, you're trying to kill me, man? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And I'm freaking smashing his head off the, like, up and down, smashing his head off the, the brink. He's got his hands around, around my wrist trying to get me off because I'm, I'm gonna determined I'm just going to kill this dude. That's it. And uh, anyways, they've one of them comes with a two-by-four. They bust a bottle over my face, kick and punch me four or five times. I get stabbed. One of them stabs me with a knife based on how the the incision looked you could tell could have been anything it could have been but it looked like a knife so what it was and uh and then the guy came with a two by four and tried to smash a two by four over my over my le- back and uh i didn't know if he was trying to hit me in the back or the back of the head whatever i just lunged forward at the last second and it came across my hamstrings and uh and it hurt dude it, it tore my hamstring right off the bone like half the muscle tore off it was the most painful part of this whole event i've been hit with a bat couple times i've been stabbed i mean hit with bottles that hamstring it's bad i end up running they chased me for a while i ran right out of my shoes i left my mustang parked in the street had the keys in it and uh and so i run they chased me for about i don't know half a block or something then i get away running through back i'm a life or death i was jumping fences like an olympic hurdler like I was just not even touching them. Just boom. And some of the houses had like Rottweilers and pit bulls and crap in the back. They're chasing me and biting at me. I'm just running. I ended up almost half dead at the side of a garage bleeding out. And I just, I had thought about a friend of mine who had just recently killed. He got jumped and beaten. And he, I was, I remember wondering what was going through his mind as it happened. Who just got smashed and beaten. And now I'm the guy that got, just got smashed and beaten. And it's me. And I looked, that's when I saw the blood pumping out of where I got stabbed, you know, right in the bottom half of my lung. And I stuck a finger in there just to see you know, how deep it was. And I just so stuck it in there. went right all the way in and buried my finger. And I'm like, oh, no. I got real lightheaded at that time. And I was like, man, if I pass out, I'm dead. And I'm going to bleed to death. The blood was pouring out of me, especially my head where I've been hit with a bat. And so I got up and jumped another fence, another street, went to another road, and then and then just started walking down the street. I ended up trying to get some water off a spigot on some house that looked half nice. This is the ghetto, by the way. I can't tell you the level of ghetto this is, but anybody who's ever been to the east side of Detroit, you know where I'm talking about. This is between six mile and like, and this is your six mile an hour drive between Kelly and Gratiot hood. So it's just, some of it's the worst ghetto in the world. And I'm walking right smack dab down the middle of it. And I'm, I'm you know, I see this house got a, a spigot on the side. I'm covered in blood. I got no shoes on. I'm a white kid. 
covered in blood with no shoes on, no shirt, stumbling down freaking the street. And I looked over to see, see a faucet. So I go over there and try to get water out of it. And here's some lady. Go, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? She comes running over. She's like, what are you doing by my house? I said, oh, sorry, ma'am. I just want some water. She runs up and she can see me now. She says, oh, my God, baby, what happened to you? I said, this guy, she's like, you're in a car accident? I'm like, no, I got to jump. She said, come here and put me on the on her porch in the chair. And she says, this is the story's poignant and relevant for a reason. I'll tell you why. She puts me on the on the on the chair. I just said, Can I just have some water? I'm really thirsty. Which is obviously is bleeding to death, so that's why. So she's giving me a glass of ice cold water. Because she comes out with an ice cold glass, clean ice cold glass of water, and I down it and say, Can I have another, please? And she gives me a white towel that was like perfectly clean, folded white towel. She says, put that over your head because you're bleeding all over the freaking place. It's just pouring out of my head. And so I did that, but then I started thinking about, I probably should have this thing over my stomach. You know what I'm saying? That's why I'm losing a lot of blood too. So I put it down there and then that's all I remember. The next thing I remember is an EMS waking me up saying, come on, you got to get on the stretcher. And I'm like, I'm not getting on a stretcher. I'm like, yeah, you got on a stretcher. You had head trauma, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I'm not getting on a stretcher. I'll walk. I'll then she's like, well, they try to convince me for like five minutes. I'm like, listen, man, I'm not getting a freaking stretcher. I'm going to ride sitting up. I don't know why I felt like they're going to chain me down and I felt just bugged out by it. I, I was weird, you know, some sh- I was in shock or something like that. They wouldn't lay down, but it was crazy. Cause I don't know how, how long it took them. I really don't because in that area of Detroit, an honest, like ambulance would probably take about a half an hour. And that's not a good day. A half an hour. If you're doing good. Uh, I mean, there's just not enough of them. It's, it's freaking, it's like a war zone, you know, a lot of that, that area, but it could have been half an hour, could have been five minutes. I passed out. So I don't know. I went back by the way. I had a great doctor named Dr. Wheaton did plastic surgery and sewed the muscle back together on my forehead. So I don't have this massive dent hole in my head. And he's, he wasn't even, I had to sign like a waiver to, that you know, authorized him because he wasn't qualified. He was a, he was a, a like an intern doctor. What, what do they call that? The emergency doctor. He's like, I'm not certified to, uh, to, to, to do this, but with your permission, he's like, I like to do it. Cause if I don't, I think you have, you know, with a big dent in here, I just, I might sag and all kinds of crap. I was like, yeah, hey, do it, man. No problem. So I just numbed it up, sewed it up. We did a great job. And freaking anyways, I took the guy out to dinner. Like a couple of days later, I, I would thank them. I brought him, I said, can you go out to dinner? He's like, man, I have to go down to the cafeteria. I'm sure I, I can't leave my the hospital when I'm in emergency, but I take a break. I took him down there and I thanked them for doing that, you know? And I said, thank you. You know, and he, we talked for a minute. I told him who I was and, you know, family wise. And he's like, geez, man, what are you doing down there? What do you, I said, hey, you know, hustling, making a buck, you know, it's the way it goes. He's like, man, you're better than that, bro. He's like, go to college, be something. You're way too smart. You should be doing something else, man. Don't do that. Don't go back. That's yeah. Yeah. I won't. You're right. You're totally right. Of course. Yeah. Two days later, I was back in the hood. I ended up shooting that guy, by the way, I didn't kill him. So I can talk about it, but, um, the dude, I saw him like a week later, he pulled up in front of me and blocked me off in a, in a, in a gold Cadillac cheesy ass like sparkle gold had been painted where it's like this cheesy ass hood sparkle and anyways they blocked me off and he's like this ain't over and he starts getting out of the car so i jumped out of the car with my 380 and, and let him have it as he, he jumped into the, the driver's seat of his boys or passenger seat of his boy's car dude he had the worst reaction time either because i jumped out of the car he did, and i walked about five steps towards him before he even realized i had a gun in my hand and then he like dove in the front seat and I just started lighting him up. Pop, 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 pop. But yeah, so I got even on that tip. So yeah, it's, it's the, way it go, the way it goes, man. It wasn't a, not a good life. You know what I'm saying? So this episode is brought to you by Stereo App. 
it is an app that you can download right to your phone. You can go to Stereo.com slash MC Podcast, right? I got a link in the description. And every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to go live. And you can be involved in the conversation. It's a way for you to join me. You can ask me questions about certain cases I've covered, certain historical figures, and other things like that. Another cool thing is, too, is I need two people to go live so you can... Be that person that is on there live with me, taking questions, having a conversation with me about whatever topic you might want me to talk about, whether it's related to my latest episode or something that I have covered in the past. Like I said, you can go to Stereo.com slash MC Podcast, or if you're already on Stereo app, you can find me at MC Podcast. And as soon as I go live, you get a notification. So bam, you're right there in the conversation with me. And it's not like you're paying anything for the download either. It's totally free. Just download it, follow me, or you can go to Stereo.com slash MC Podcast and catch me when I go live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and be a part of the conversation with me. So, like, when it all comes crashing down, man, you you were eventually brought up on... If, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, like 17 capital crimes, one of like bank robbery, extortion and shit. How did all uh, that go? And like your bank robbery story is a pretty, pretty fucking wild one too, man. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that and how you got them, how uh, the whole trial and the 13 years went down. Oh, geez. Well, that's a long story, but I was kind of a renegade, man. I just had, <laughs> I had a... Uh, Really pissed a lot of people off. I was using drugs. That's just, you know, often the case, the, the downfall of someone like me. Had I not used drugs and focused my energy and, you know, on these things, I could be, I could have been, I could be making millions of dollars right now. I should be, but it just, it is what it is. I'm going to make millions of dollars anyways. I'm just going to make it off my novels and potentially my YouTube content. Yeah, for real. But, but my <laughs> novels, and, and all, 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 all it will ever take, ever. Is one serious player from Hollywood to read my novels, and it's game changer, life changer. They know it. They'll read it and go, "This is my career maker right here. This is what this is what I'll leave behind is my legacy." And, and they'll find a way to get the movie made, and then I'll make a bunch of money and become a household name and sell a lot of books. So, but because they're that good, and I'm saying, it, and I'm not saying that because I wrote them. It's not my ugly baby. I'm not trying to sell. Just go read the reviews. If you haven't read the reviews, then then you know. And and in fact, and I say that people come back and like seems a little fishy these reviews are so good they're too good to be true and i'm like huh, that's the irony and i'm like uh the irony is that i had nothing to do with nothing <laughs> they are all real legitimate reviews read the book and you'll you'll write one just like it trust me i get it all the time people think the reviews are fake even if it's a self-published book like mine which is done well it doesn't matter even a mainstream book that's like a new york times bestseller it's not going to be it's there's reviews will be like 3.5 or four point at the best, never five. Oh, yeah. And so it's very, very rare to get a perfect five star reviews. I am, I think my volume two dropped to a four point nine five simply because I think some haters, I think some haters, you know, some haters can go in there and leave reviews. You don't even have to post a review, yep. just go give it a negative review, like you're saying. So that's what they did. Um, and you don't even have to um, buy the book either. So you could just go on there and get negative, but nobody's ever given me a, a four review. Impossible. 
I, one chick did say she's like I I'm a school English, I'm an English teacher a school teacher and your book is on as far as the story goes is a perfect five but I did find a couple typos and grammatical errors which happens you know not many but she's like I found them so that's way therefore it's not a perfect five but damn close so well done you know so anyways that's <laughs> that's the story but so yeah so I get busted um. I won't go into great detail about that, the, the whole bank thing. It's all a long yeah, story. Sure. It's, a, it's a long story. If you want that story, go on my YouTube channel. You know what I'm saying? What I'll say is it, I, I ended up going on a crime spree because I was out there. I needed money. I just bought a new house. I had another house. I had you know a house that I rented to, so I could like, take side girlfriends there. You know, it, was a, it was just so really I had three. And I was just living beyond my means, a bunch of cars and toys and crap. I had everything. I was just with, and a drug habit. And you wouldn't have known it. I still worked out. I was muscle head and dressed really nice. And just started a new business. And the business was doing really good too, man. It was a, it was a, as a contractor, general contractor. I mean, like a month, I made like 20 grand the first month. But, you know, I, I had to pay a bunch of stuff too. So, anyways, I ended up going this crime spree pretty much is what they called it. Used the freaking fake bomb to rob a bank. Um, got in a high-speed chase. Crashed. Got out and ran. Cops got me, beat my ass in Detroit, Detroit police, PD. And uh, there was a checking device in the money. That's how I got caught. Because I, I, I had lost them twice. I was in a stolen Yukon Denali, which, by the way, that thing was freaking fast, bro. I think it was a <laughs> 90, yeah, I think it was a, like a 96 Yukon Denali. And I had it doing like 120 in a high-speed chase on, on I-94, just flying, dude. And the cops were pulled back. When you get going that fast, they call off the chase. So, and I was able to put like a mile distance on them. They had the whole expressway blocked off. All I seen behind me is a wall of flashing lights. And then like in front, up in front of me were some more cops. I got off the, the, the expressway like a dumbass right at the corner where the, the Harper Woods police station is. And when I, there was, I got a green light and I come up to the, off the service drive and there's a green light there. And you, I was turning left. There was a cop parked in his car at the light smoking a cigarette and i come around do cut this corner at about 40 you know and it's denali and it's like and he freaking like man we were we were like five feet apart and i'm like i looked him dead in the eye he's hitting his cigarette man and i I just remember him like he must have been thinking what the f this denali comes fly around the corner and then i just gun it and blew through beaconsfield doing about 100 and did a hail mary i'm not joking literally did a hail mary sat back and blew through a red light at freaking 100 which i didn't even need to do because the cops weren't even behind me man they were they were back there like a mile you know what i'm saying i could have slowed down for this light but <laughs> did a hail mary i made it and i ended up crashing the denali i freaking got out ran i was exhausted i was kicking dope they beat my ass took me away as soon as i get to the police station they made a big deal out of me like they're like man you're gonna be in every paper morning you're gonna be which i was and I, I was just so mad that they beat my ass so bad. And the, and the, the captain knew who I was. The captain knew my grandpa. He's like, I know you. He's like, you're Pete Tucker's grandson. Yeah. And I said, yeah. How do you know? He's like, yeah, I, just, I know Pete, friend of mine. And that told me what I did. So when his boy, the, one of these dudes who beat my ass was walking by, the main dude, I called him Urkel. I said, man, listen, I won't be in prison. <laughs> this guy walks by. I'm bleeding all over the place. I'm getting fingerprinted in the back of the ninth precinct in Detroit, like the most ghetto precinct in, in Detroit. And the guy, the dude who freaking try to tackle me the first time I slammed them on the second time because I told him I gave up. I knew to run like your freaking Ray Lewis tried to tackle me. 
And he comes barreling at me, so I picked him up, slammed him, and that's and then the boys all ran out and they beat my ass. Well, once I got cuffs on, he starts pistol whipping me, like wailing at me on the head with his pistol. And it, it split my head open. And I told him, I'm killing you. And that's it. So when he was walking by in the back with his fingerprinting, and all these cops, there's like a main officer desk in the back. And then the front of it, this plexiglass where people can come in because, you know, it's bulletproof. People have walked in there and shot up that place, by the way. And so I'm in the back and all these cops and I, this guy walks by. I said, hey, you mother effing Urkel mother. I went off. I said, bro, I was I don't like to repeat. I'm not going to repeat what I said to him. I'm not going to say it. But what I said was essentially I won't be in prison forever. I looked at his name. I think it was Jones. I said, Jones, I'll find out who you are. And when I get out, I'm going to kill you and your kids and your wife. Just know that what you did to me so when it happens you know it's, and he's he wouldn't even look at me the sergeant or the captain who's fingerprinting me don't say nothing yeah none of them say nothing like the whole place gets quiet the whole place there's like 12 cops at that big desk and i'm yelling i said i'm gonna kill your wife and kids so just so you know remember me i won't be i'll be back 10 12 years i'll see you again none of them said nothing i don't know why but then the atf showed up and then the fbi showed up and they, they, the fbi guy like trumped everybody went in there and said hey here's my card you know, we can make this go away. And I said, how's that? And he's like, you know what you got to do. And he had a microphone. I mean, a, a little recording thing. He said something thing. I said, man, for, you got the wrong guy, bro. He's like, what do you mean you got the wrong guy? I'm like, I'm not that guy. He's like, you know, you're going to do 30 years. Oh, for 30 years. I said, maybe, maybe not. And I'm not feeling real cocky at the moment, by the way. I am dope sick and just got my ass beat. You know what I'm saying? So and I got my shirt. I got a ripped shirt, freaking no shoes on. I mean, sitting there. And I end up, he's like, he says, you're going to get 30 years. And I said, eh, maybe, maybe not. And then I puked. But believe me, the reason I puked was because I was so shell-shocked and dope sick and just knowing that what's happening, you know, knowing I'm about to go to prison for all these years. And there's this fed. And he just wants to know. So he says, tell me about so-and-so, which is a really weird person. I'm not going to say their name because I didn't know that much about him. And then he said, tell me about Tony. Tell me about this guy. Tell me about that guy. And I'm like, Tony's dead, so but anyways, they, I I really told him to kiss my ass. I said, Are you sure that's what you want? I said, Yeah. He's so he he walks out and he gives me his card and he stands to walk out. I said, Well, call me if you you know change your mind. And I take the card as he's walking out. I said, No, man, I'm good. I'll never call you. And I flung it. I flung it. It was a good throw through it, flung it like landed right by his feet. I'm like, eh, I'm good, because he was like 10 feet away from me. I flung it. I said, No, man, I'm good. You keep that. I'm not that guy. I know I may be in a lot of trouble, but I'm not freaking ratting on nobody. So yeah, so when you get into prison, you ended up getting 13 years, and I was listening to one of your uh, one of your interviews and then reading a bunch of stuff, and when you got into prison, you, were, you really didn't fight, kind of kept to yourself, and then you started writing. So what, what brought you to the whole writing thing? I have known all my life that I've had this gift for creating these. That's what's funny, because I've had a couple of people say, haters. Haters, and even some from my neighborhood where, like, I only knew them in high school, and then after high school, I'd maybe saw them four or five times. You know, I'd see them here or there, or they want to call they call me to ask to buy a bag of weed or something. That's it, and i go see them. They were all, the only thing they'd want to do was play video games, smoke pot, you know, drink beer in some dopey apartment or some basement of their parents' house or whatever. So I left them. I around, you know, 17, 18 years old. And then some of them have tried to say that, like my shows on YouTube, and they're like, oh man, well, he's a freaking creator, man. He's just making shit up and just telling these stories because that's what he does. He's a novelist. That's the stuff he writes. And I'm like, nah, that's, that's insane. And insane. I've had, I've come back. They don't say it to me, but they sell it to people and people come to me. So they said it. So the first thing is if I ever see him, I'm going to smack the shit out of him. 
and get it on camera, I'll make him famous. But the, but the other thing is, I tell the people go back and say, ask them where I lived when I got locked up, what my house looked like, and and also what car kind of car I was driving. They can't. I said, they, and of course, then they'll ask them. They'll come. They, they didn't know. Like, now you think they don't know what kind of car I drive, where I live, what street, what my house looks like, but they're telling you that they know the intimate de details of my criminal life, all the things that I was doing with my uncle and my family. Which, by the way, I've you know it's the most secretive mafia family in the world, and I've seen guys killed for even talking about the stuff they were connected to. Literally, seen them killed. So I'm like, eh, you know, I keep it to myself. I don't share it with my freaking pothead loser freaking old high school friends you know what i'm saying but um but the, the writing is is i've always had this creative gift and that's one of the reasons that these guys have said that so even in high school i used to meet girls and tell them someday you're gonna watch my movies because i had ideas i'd always just create and i, and I actually like to read which is another weird thing i didn't read a ton of books when i was young but I, I did read a few and i liked them so when i got to prison i was trying to evaluate you know first of all i said i want to change my life i don't i don't want to go back to that life it's a miserable life you're just always this in so many ways it's so bad it's just horrible in so many ways you know you're always where's your next score going to be where's you know who are you going to deal with who can you trust you got to kick up half your money to guys that freaking really don't give a crap about you i'm just it's the life of me so i said i have this gift that with this creative gift so I, I started reading books when I was in the hole, when I was in jail. I was in the hole for 17 months. And, and, and um, yeah, long story. I got into steals and they put me in the hole for 17 months. So I started reading a lot. And then I started realizing these, these books are not that good. I mean, I could, I could do better. So I started creating these ideas in my mind. I'd lay there on my bunk, you know, run in there to sell 23 hours a day. And staring at the ceiling, I create these more stories in my mind, and I can escape those cells. That's the best part. Like once I get into the story, I can close my eyes and even leave my eyes open and envision this story unfolding. Not every word, every narrative, every dialogue, nothing. This the beginning of the story and where it should go. A conflict, you know, romance interest here, a conflict there, a subplot here, and a resolution there. And I would create those things in my mind, and I, just like I do now, I'm writing a book. I'm writing my tenth book right now called 2020 blindsight which is inspired by true events of last year it's a good story it's a lot different than anything i've written before but it's, it's gonna turn out really so i started writing to pass the time and just do something positive so i knew as soon as i saw i had my first book i sent it to my cousin in the street and he was blown away it's just incredible it's like i'm not even a big reader but i could not wait to get back to this book loved it so then I wrote another book, Vietnam Autobiography. It's like a fictional Vietnam biography. Crazy, incredible story. My, I call it my retirement plan. To me, in my opinion, it's my best work. Um, it's long. It's like 800-page novel. But it's so the story is mind-blowing, and it's very entertaining. But um, all, my, all my stories, all my books have one thing in common. They all have very complex plots. But not so complex where they're hard to find or follow, but complex involved at the end he was like holy crap you know what i mean that's like never would have saw that coming so that's kind of how i write <clears throat> so i started writing and giving the manuscripts to people in prison to read and evaluate and they all said the same things this is one of the things that's kind of find difficult to say because it sounds like i'm tooting my own horn or i'm making it up or whatever whatever but i give the books to guys in prison and ask them for a non-biased opinion and they come back in like two days like the Vietnam book, for example. Well, all the books were like that. But the Vietnam book, for example, I saw a guy who used to read all the time. I was in a level four prison. That's 22 hours a day locked down. I see him always reading. He was in the cell next to me. 
So I, when I finished the book, literally finished the book, walked out two hours later in the, on the way to Chow, said, hey, man, you read, want to read my manuscript? He said, what's it about? I said, it's about this Vietnam guy, guy in Vietnam, three, three years in Vietnam, three tours in Vietnam. I go, it's dope, man. He's like, I'd love to read that. He's like, I was in Vietnam. I was a Navy CB, so it's like, you know, right up my alley. And I said, oh, I could because I see you reading all the time. So he reads the book. The next morning, at the break for Chow at, at 6 o'clock in the morning. And you hear click, 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 and they start unlocking all the doors. And my door, you hear click, 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 and all of a sudden the guy pushes my door open. I'm just getting out of my bunk. And he's got the manuscript, and he's holding it. I said, I jumped down. I was like, oh, what's wrong, man? Freaking couldn't get into it. He's like, no, I finished it. I'm like, what? He's like, I've read for 24 hours straight. Didn't sleep, didn't eat, nothing. I just, just couldn't put it down. I think he said, I did. He said, I think he did say he'd get up for one meal, but he didn't. He made his own meal. He didn't go to chow. And I was like, man, damn, bro. He's like, you're in. He's like, dude, this book is the most incredible story I've ever read. I've read 20,000 books. I've been down 20 years. It's all I do is read. Usually read a book every other day. I'm a freaking, you know, I'm a fan of all the greatest novelists. He racks off a couple of freaking names. I don't know. And he says, bro, when this book gets published, they're going to talk about it across the, the country. And I don't know who they're talking when he was talking about, like they are going to talk about, you just said that. He's like, your book's going to get talked about across the country. This book is going to freaking how in your, he's like, I can sit here in the next, this cell for five years and never dream up anything like this. He's like, how did you do it? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I just did it. You know what I mean? I just created it. It, just is, it is what it is. All from scratch. I didn't even have reference tools. Then when I rewrote it for the the version I sent home, I re, I got this book called the, the Vietnam, all things Vietnam, like a Vietnam encyclopedia, everything related to Vietnam War and really polished it up. Plus, I had a, think I got a dictionary too. When the first one, I didn't have one. The moral of the story is I wrote, 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 and everybody was telling me the same thing. They're all going, dude, you're the truth. You're the truth. I mean, I had guys read my book, come back and say, that's the best book I've ever read. Holy crap. And then I, they got like, you got another one? I'm like, yeah, here's another one. I gave it back. He come back two days later. Dude, I know I said the other one's the best book I ever read, but dude, I think this one's better, bro. This could be better. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, thank you, bro. So the two best books you've ever read in your life are written by me. He's like, that's mind boggling. So I go, here's another one. Give it. And he'd come back and go, dude, I'm not joking. I think this one is better than the other two. You are the freaking greatest writer on the world, bro. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. And I heard that like a lot, dude. And some people weren't that, you know, you know, dramatic about it. Some people were like, holy crap, dude, you're really talented, man. You're like, you got a future in this. And like, that's how I got in with the big, the big head <clears throat> in, in prison, the, um, the Mobites are the biggest, the black Muslim Mobites are the biggest, like, gang, right? It's all they are is a gang. It's, they don't care about some, there's some religious, but the, but it's, most of them are just gangs. I mean, they're all, home, a lot of them are homosexuals and they, and they steal, rob, stab, whatever, so not really practicing their religion. But it allows them to gather in strength and have this, like, basically an army on the yard. They have their own gang. And it's, and it's a hierarchy. Well, the head dude, uh, Lyles Bay, I don't know if he was the head head dude, but he was one of the top. There's a couple of them, Allen Bay, that are the head head dudes. I became friends with all of them. And so he, he, my one boy who did 15 years in level five, his name is Bam. He's out now. I've seen him since he's been out at the Italian festival. He was, he had made friends with this guy, Lyles Bay, and Bam reads my book. And he's like, holy mother effort. He's like, I got to give this to my boy, Lyles Bay. So he gives it to Lyles Bay, and Lyles Bay reads it and says, I want to meet this guy. Me. So he gives the book back, and I come back. I mean, how you doing, Lyles Bay? Me and Lyles Bay end up walking the yard together for a lot. And so now everybody on the yard has <clears throat> seen me walk the yard with this head hit, head hitter. I mean, he's basically the equivalent, like the mob don of the yard. He's the heaviest hitter. He could have you stabbed with just like that. 
off the yard, stab, beat, whatever, whatever he wants. But he's not, he's not like, like that. He's actually really, really cool dude. Laid back, chill, smart. And he starts telling me how he wants to write a book. And this is what he wants to write a book about. I don't remember what it was, but we walked for hours over the next like week. So the whole yard saw me walking with this dude. And that's happened with me before. In fact, this is a great story. I'll tell you a quick, great side story. I met this dude, Rod Maddie, when I was in, in the hole. And he came in, to, they rode him into this prison and, and this county jail so he could testify on behalf of this friend named Hurricane, another lunatic who stabbed somebody at Macomb Prison. This guy walks in, fires up a joint, and hands me a joint. Now, he came from prison, walks in, and now I'm in the hole of the county jail. They bring him to the county jail because he's in the county there to testify about a st- prison stabbing. The guy lights a freaking joint, hands me the joint. He's in the next cell. The cops say, you know, Maddie, you want your out, hour out since you're already out? You only get an hour to walk up and down this walk. So he's like, yeah, I'll take it. And as soon as he walks by, I hear him say, yeah, I'll take it. I, he's carrying his box. I said, you're Chaldean? He says, yeah, how'd you know? I said, come on, man. And I said, I, I grew up with Chaldeans. Around. Chaldeans are these Arabs that are Christian from where I live. There's a ton of them. And they're heavy hitters. They're freaking gangsters. And this dude, I didn't know, but this dude was freaking like the, one of the biggest gangsters ever. So the funny thing is he come out with this cigarette smoking, like a little roll-up cigarette. He's like, you want to hit? You want to hit this, bro? And I'm like, nah, no, I'm good. I don't smoke. Then I smelled it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. he's like, you just take this. I've got another one. So I, I get to smoke this whole joint. So now we, we smoke our own joints. We're in the hole. He, he's like, kind of, we get to kicking about friends, mutual friends and people, places and whatever. I got the guy dying. I got him laughing. He's laughing so hard. He's the first guy I ever said. I ever heard say game recognized game. He said that. He's like, ah, oh, like a good. I can tell you're a real man. Game recognized game. First time I ever heard it. So anyways. Years later, 10 years later, I'm in Kinross prison. This is the worst prison. One of the worst prisons in the country. I think it was the second worst at the time, just based on sheer violence and stabbings. 300 stabbings in like the first year I was there, 288 or something like that. A couple of murders. It was just bad, 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 bad. <clears throat> so I was sitting there in the, in the bleachers watching a softball game. You know, get ride-ins every day. People ride in. And I look and I see this Rod Maddie dude come through. And he's like there. I'm like, I'm like, hey, Rod. He looks up at me. kind of, hey, I said, you don't remember me? And he's, I'm like, he's like, yeah, you know, 10 years has been a long time. You've probably been to freaking five, six, seven joints. They move him around a lot. And I'll tell you why. And, he, and he's like, yeah, I'm like, remember county jail you're f- for, uh, for, for hurricane, yada, yada, yada. He's like, hey, just, you crazy, bro. Oh, I remember now. <laughs> you were going crazy. And, then you were and I said, yeah, man, I was going crazy in there. So we start walking the yard. I, I, I let him read my book. Now I've written all these books. <clears throat> I let him read that one to be a king, the one that's out right now. It's about a fictional Detroit mafia family. And he reads it. And he's like, every day he comes out and we walk the yard. And he's kind of critiquing it with me. And we're walking the yard. By the way, this is the whole story with this dude. 15 years before this, this guy was taking, waiting to take a shower. He'd been in prison. You know, a guy had been in prison. When I met him, he'd been in prison like 20 years. So he's waiting to take a shower. And these black dudes just like sit there. And, and he went into the bathroom. And some another black dude walked up and said, you know, who's next for the shower? Rod says, I'm next for the shower. And all of a sudden, another voice goes, you hear a voice go, fuck that white boy, man. Go ahead and go, man. F him, whatever. That's what he said. I, Rod told me the whole story. And Rod ain't the guy who's going to BS, make nothing up. This is a good dude, man. This is the kind of dude you wish you had in your camp, man. This is a solid, good dude, man. And that's why he's in prison. For, you know, he killed a couple guys on orders. And so he hears him say, fuck that white boy. You know, you can go next. And he comes walking out. Dude's in a towel. He's got a towel. He's like shaving or something. And he says, which one of you motherfuckers said that? And they none of them spoke. No one said that's what I thought, you punk-ass bitch. Whoever said it, you're a punk-ass bitch. I'll beat your mother effing ass. 
and nobody said nothing, right? They were scared because they should have been. This and this guy boxes too. He's a fighter. He's he's a bad mofo. Super fitness dude, just like you know, thousand push-ups a day kind of guy, thousand sit-ups a kind of guy. Super fit and a badass. Not nasty with his fists. I wouldn't want to fight him. He's not as big as me, but you know, he's he's a little bit older now. But um, anyways, one of them black dudes were was a mopite, and they felt disrespected, so uh, they sent somebody at him to stab him. And of course, Rod has his own knife. Fight in there, Jackson Prison. It was right on the tier. It was up, fighting on the tier, stabbing each other. And they, I don't know, they both, they, they stabbed each other, but nobody was, like, majorly stabbed up. Eventually, the SEALs caught them, and, and they, you know, they, I don't think there was any case, but they went, got went through the hole for a year, nine months, whatever, you know, stitched up their wounds, whatever. Soon as he gets out, the mobiles try to stab him again. He stabs one of them again. I think he knocked that one out, though. Like, he beat his ass, like, knocked him out, stomped him. He goes goes to the hole for six months, whatever. Then he gets out. They go at him again. This goes on for like fifteen years. Now he's freaking like he's going after them. You know, he's trying to hit the head that the top dogs, so they'll call it off. And eventually they do. After like ten years, he's been in the hole, level five, stabbed like ten dudes. And finally, the, the head mobiles are like, "All right, man, enough is enough. Listen, man, we won't call it off." You could, you're good. If, you know, we call, but he's like, yeah, yeah, I never had a problem to begin with, man. I just want to beat the guy's ass. He started the whole thing. Other than that, I don't want no war with you guys, but I, I ain't ready. I'm ready to die. I don't know who he is, but I'm ready to die. We're going to go. And the head guy called it off, said, man, we're good. We're good with you, man. No more problems. He's like, okay. Now I'm walking the yard with the dude at King Ross prison, the most violent prison in the city and in, in, in the state because he read my books. He's reading my book. And we walked for hours every day, man. Dude really dug me, man. He, he, he told me his whole story, how he got to prison, the whole thing. He was partners with the guy Baja, and they killed some dudes for some money. And it's a horrible thing how he, how he ended up getting in prison. But anyways, we'd walk, and every all these freaking Mobites, all these, like, all the gangs, the Vice Lords, Latin Counts, Latin Kings, uh, they, uh, you know, they all would see me in this freaking crazy Arab dude, Maddie, walking in the yard. For hours and hours and hours, and they, and of course I had walked with the head mobite dude before too, so it's like they're looking at me like this guy, who the hell is he, man? He done walk with Lyle Bay for hours, and now he's walking with this freaking lunatic Maddie. Because everybody knows everybody, everybody. It doesn't take long, you know. The, the average guys are gonna slip into us. <clears throat> you won't, you never know. You see him around, but you don't even know their name. You don't notice them. But the guys like the heads, you kind of learn who they are. You pay attention to them, how they're moving. And I didn't want attention. I didn't want attention, but I just happened to be, you know, walking the yard with these guys. Got me a lot of attention. It probably helped me stay out of trouble. You know, like I said, not getting in a lot of fights. I, 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 most people knew my reputation from, from other people. I didn't say it when I get to prison. As soon as I got to a prison, people were like, rumor would spread around who I am, who my family is, you know, yada, yada, yada. My boy would, my boys would like introduce me to the heads and say who I am. And then they had to try, probably must say, like, leave them alone because they never have a problem. So while you're in there, man, you started dating your current wife. And like when me and you were texting, I was like, dude, this is probably the best part of the story is how how you ended up meeting your wife. Now you guys are married, man. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, I mean, actually, that is the best part of my story is my wife. I never get told thinking about it. But I was about six years, six and a half years into my bit. I left my old girlfriend. I told my girlfriend who was, I went with a girl for 20 years, you know, six of them while I was in prison. And then I just told her, go on with her life. You know, it was kind of a tough, tough thing for me to do, but I just didn't want her to feel like she was obligated to wait 13 years, you know, 
just just go. I mean, I wanted her to, but I knew she was already probably dating somebody because I could tell things were different. And that's not what I wanted. So if you're gonna wait, you gotta wait. You know, be a woman. If not, just go on with your life. And I hope, wish you the best. But it left me in this was this kind of dark, lonely void in my life. And my cousin started a Facebook for me, just so maybe you know some some girls from the old neighborhood and friends could reach out. <clears throat> and I got a couple messages from her, this girl, and she says, "You probably don't know me, you know." We were in different circles, but I remember you. I see you're a Christian. I'm a new Christian. I also see that you're a writer, and I work for a publisher. Maybe I can read one of your books and try to help. And so she sent me this letter, and uh, it's called the JPay Prison JPay. And it was originally was on through through Facebook. My cousin was relaying them, but there's something called JPay, which is a prison email. She wrote me that, and I was just like, I had no romantic interest in her. Not like that. I didn't want to ruin any girl's life. She was she was married. I just you know I answered honestly and I said oh, and be happy to have a pen pal or whatever. And I, I had my friends send her my book. This is how it happened. I had my friend digitize my book, turn it into a PDF file, and then send it to her via email. And she read the whole book in two days. It's eleven hundred page book. So what you what she read was volume one and volume two. So she read that whole thing on her phone. And it was in a PDF format that's not the greatest. In two days, she read the whole thing. She read, she read probably in two days, probably ten hours. She's a real fast reader. And then she wrote me and called me the unicorn. That was a. She says in publishing, you often have very well written stories, but the the story itself is not that great because they just they don't have the imagination. And every once in a while, you have a, a great story, but. Nine times out of ten, the, the the writing's bad. So, and most people don't care if the story's good enough to overlook that bad writing. But she's like, you know, but once in a while you get the unicorn, and she's like, you're the unicorn. So, that meant a lot coming from her because I knew she worked in publishing and knew the business better than I did. I had a got a lot of people in prison telling me that I'm the greatest writer in the world. But, but what does that mean? I mean, it means a lot really because if you think about how many guys in prison are big readers. They've read hundreds of books, thousands of books. That's what they do. Everybody's reading a book. Everybody in prison is reading a book at some point, at any given time. There's a book they have. So just think about, there's 1,400 guys on, my, on a compound. They're all reading a book. And this may be two pages in, there may be 500 pages in. And there's a lot of, you know, so they're, and they're tough. So I knew a book was good, but when somebody in the street like her said it was, you know, that gave me that compliment, it was, was very nice to hear. So we started writing each other going back and forth and she wanted to help me and um i mean it happened really fast because she's like where do you want to live when you get out i'm like up north out in the woods away from people i'm i'm sick of people i want to get the hell away from people in the city there's a lot of bad things happen i've seen it i've been part of those bad things i don't want to be around those uh, anything like related to the city and she's like wow me too i love camping and fishing or what it was that her she she was grow grew up as a muslim the oldest sister of six girls and or was she five whatever she's the old i think it's six and she was like had to be like cinderella she had to cook clean do laundry take care of her five little sisters that's what she did for her and her dad made her do it she couldn't go to any events no school stuff parties nothing she had no normal life whatsoever she was a slave to, to her family and her sisters and that's it for her whole life so she had this she also loved to read super that's how she would escape it was almost like she was in prison herself as a kid all she did is cook clean do laundry change diapers blah 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 and her dad hated her and so she 
get books and escape to you know her imagination escape she would have friends over who had books she wanted to read and she said bring over your books and the friends would come over and she's like ah, i don't feel good i got a stomachache uh, i think i'm gonna lay down and then the girls would leave like, can you leave your books and they're like yeah okay whatever that's how she hustled for books uh, no joke she also for books she worked in a bookstore had a literary scholarship in college was for college but she couldn't take it because her dad wouldn't let her she had to you know take care of the kids so now all these years later she became a Christian with her boyfriend and believed in Christ. And she just thought maybe it'd be nice to you know, correspond with me, a good writer. And because she's a writer and a big reader, we started exchanging these very long and elaborate detailed letters, probing each other's minds, really, with, with words. That's what writing is. And it's just a matter of probing the mind. And so I would uh, try to impress her with my wordplay and she would do the same. And I tried to impress her with my knowledge of trivia, and she would do the same. And it was just this back and forth kind of dance that we did until we just started going, man, everything was like, me too, me too. I love doing this. Me too. I love this. Me too. This is where I want to live. Me too. And she finally just came. We started to flirt a little bit, which we shouldn't have done, but we couldn't help it. I mean, we, I'd say something that would set up a funny innuendo type of joke or something, and she'd do the same thing. And we danced around that for a while and called it the painted line. We can't pass pass. We can't, you know, pass that line, the painted line. That's why if we ever did a movie based on our story, we'd call it the painted line because that's what we called it. Can't go over that painted line. So just no flirting, no just that, that. But then we couldn't help it, and we did. And then eventually, about six months in, I think my wife, my future wife, told me, she's like, listen, I'm gonna. Uh, I think I'm in love with you, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm in love with you too, but you can't be. She's like, listen, I'm gonna leave my husband, and I'm gonna wait for you. It's six years she has to wait now, and I'm like, are you sure that's what you want to do? Are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I made real sure. And then she, and then she says, okay, I'm gonna tell him. I'm gonna tell him tomorrow or whatever. Go for a walk and tell him. Then so in the next time text she sent me, which is the email, JP email, she scared me. She said, listen, you're going to have to be stronger than you've ever been. I remember she led with that. I'm sorry. You're going to have to be stronger than you've ever been. But I about, and, and like, I thought she was about to freaking say, you know, she changed your mind. She's like, you're just going to break it off, you know, go on with her life, whatever. But then she said, sorry, you're going to be strong. You have to be strong for me. I told, I told him that I, i'm over it's over and he asked me why and i said so there's somebody else he kind of looked at her crazy like what for somebody else yeah i'm with you all the time and then he thought and you know because she knew he she'd been writing me like just every day writing me every day for like hours sitting on the computer writing me. he thought i was you know doing bible studies and just whatever didn't realize that she'd fallen in love so from that point on we just started planning for a future like you know and um we eventually we hadn't gotten on the phone yet at that point. By the way, we, that's the crazy part. She left her husband and committed her life to me. We'd never even spoken on the phone, only in writing. And I even proposed that we leave it that way indefinitely. You know that we. I I enjoy writing her. It was so therapeutic and, and to me, and I love writing, especially in a way that's fun and open narrative, so I can impress her with what I do. In my writing style, and she does the same. I would have wrote her to the day I got out and then spoken to her the first day that I walked out for the first time, but she was insistent that we talk. So we ended up getting on the phone and talking. And then, then of course, then we got to the point where we talked every day, which is very expensive, you know, 
but we probably our phone bill was probably at least one hundred and fifty dollars a week, two hundred dollars a week sometimes, just for the phone. Yeah, I know, every day for an hour or two, every day, and that that created a lot of haters in prison because when you're like, you kind of have to be a baller to send the phone freaking for hours and hours. But there's a few guys like me who, who did it. A lot of guys, you know. Now with all the the really institutionalized old lifers who got nobody, they hate they hate seeing that. But uh, anyway, so my she waited, man, for six and a half years, and then I got a freaking parole, man. And I, the day I walked out of parole, I walked out of prison. It was a it was like ninety five degrees, pure blue skies. I had this badass shirt on that was actually the cover of my book. I had already designed the cover, or she did, and I had a guy in here as a painter paint it perfectly to be a king. The cover of my book on a perfect brand new white T-shirt, and I had some khakis that that they they tried to take away all the the, the visiting stuff. They did, but like if you had it, you're supposed to throw it out or turn it in. Well, I kept this khaki pair of khakis from visiting because they they changed it so you can't even wear. You had to wear blues on visits now, and I put the khakis. I had the khakis cut and made and like hemmed into a shorts, nice pair of shorts. So I had this khaki uh, shorts, this T-shirt, and I walked out of prison on this beautiful day. She, I said, I want you to cook me a feast. I'm going to have my crew pick me up. Then we'll, you know, we'll do breakfast down here, and then uh, I'll come, they'll have them drive me to the crib, new house, our house. So I walked out, and I, you know, I was super nervous wrecked. Honest, honest to God, truth, I had probably only slept maybe two hours a night at the best for the last, 14 days. I mean, it was horrible. I was exhausted and I'm working out a double time. I'm like, I'm doing two sessions a day. I'm super ripped up. I'm all ripped up. I'm like 195 pounds ripped up in great shape and amazing shape. Better shape than I was when I was 19 years old. And uh, when I was doing bodybuilding shows for an all natural, but I was eating really good. I was eating a dozen eggs every day. You know, I had, had plugs on connections on the vegetables and the, and the eggs and protein. But anyway, so they picked me up. They're out, they Facebook live me walking out of prison again. I didn't think they were going to let me out. I just kept thinking they're going to, they're going to grab me up just as I go to walk out and they're going to grab me up and snatch me back and say, you got an old charge. We didn't tell you about your charges staying in. Oh, what a freaking nightmare, man. And I was so nervous. And I, when I left prison, a lot of guys didn't like me in prison. Most guys didn't because I was, they knew I was a writer and I just was trying to do something rather than sit around and play cards and, and, smoke dope and tell war stories and you know be an idiot i was focused on my craft focused on creating a life so they kind of so when i left that morning like one or two guys came sitting by and then i was just waiting in the cell all by myself everybody's moving around open open unit and they finally called me to go and i remember walking across the yard and i've got this foot locker on a like a dolly and i'm pulling it and a couple cops see me man they're like where you going man i said man, the f out of here man good luck me up four guys and they'll like rush me out of there. They film it on Facebook, do a Facebook Live. So that's on my YouTube. There's a video of me right when I just walked out. Two people were doing it. Uh, there's another YouTube, Facebook Live from my cousin too. And they carry my stuff, like my footlock for me. And I jumped in at this dude's freaking Hellcat, brand new Hellcat. And like we pull out of the, the prison, get a selfie of us. And it says Macomb Prison right there. The first selfie I ever took was of myself and this dude. I can say his name in the in the in the, in the prison sign. Then it's a hundred, like it's a quarter of a mile down the road is the on ramp to I ninety four. As soon as he hits his on ramp, dude, he just stomps on the gas. A seven hundred horsepower Hellcat, bro, just freaking 
It's crazy, man. That's the fastest thing I've ever been in. It's just freaking rocket ships. Next thing we're doing like 120. And I tell him, dude, please stop, man. I'm gonna throw up, please. And he did. And I mean, he thought it was funny, but I'm like, nah, dude, I don't you're not gonna kill me the same day I get out five minutes after I'm out. You're gonna freaking kill me in your freaking dumbass, dumbass hellcat. But um, they took me to breakfast, they gave me some toys and gifts, and uh, including an iPhone. Then they drove me home to my wife, uh, five hours north. And who would cook the feast? And she's like, "What do you want?" I said, "I want a turkey, a nice full turkey, and um, oxtails, um, steamed asparagus, and a nice big salad, and a cheesecake and a pecan pie." So that's exactly what she had. There's a famous picture of it on my Facebook, right on the front one. That's me. And to see the three, to see my co- my boy Billy, my cousin Joe, and me, and this table full of food in front of us, and they're all like cheesy grinning out on the deck and i snuck up on my wife that's the funny thing i wanted to try to sneak up on her i knew she was in the house i was going to surprise her so i snuck through the woods about a hundred had the guys go past the house like 100 yards she knew we were coming we'd be there soon but she didn't know when so i'm like i passed the house <clears throat> they go about 100 yards past the house and then i jump out sneak through the woods and i come creeping across the woods and then the lawn's like 40 yards to the house and she's sitting on a deck it's pretty kind of loud, you know. It's just birds, a lot of birds chirping, insects, you know, going. So I have enough cover noise to where I can walk up. She doesn't even know. And I come walking up. I'm like, Birdie, because I call her Birdie. I'm like, I said, Birdie. And she turned around, <gasps> couldn't believe me. And I jumped on with a rail on the deck, grabbed her, started crying. And you both were like, hugged each other and started crying. I mean, just crying, really. She was really letting it go. And um, she looked beautiful. She was in this dress and she's just, oh, man. And then, uh, then the next day, no, well, my boys wanted to film that. I said no. I said I want. I need this. I want this to be private. You know, give me five minutes and then, then come over here. So I was like, okay. They gave us five minutes and they come walking in the backyard filming us. And we're still hugged up and crying. But I mean, it was you know we we needed a moment alone and we deserve that. So um, anyways, then I started my life. The next day, I married my wife, and which is a very emotional, tear jerking event. I mean, me and my two boys as witnesses. They, uh, we were all crying. All the boys were crying. It was the magistrate chick and my wife, and even they were crying. It was very emotional. I, the, the, the woman, they, the women doing it, she had no idea that I had just come from 13 years of prison, you know what I'm saying, and that I was free and marrying my wife. But it was still emotional to see these three big, tough guys. Also, my cousin, the bodybuilder, Billy's a big, tough guy. He was a model for Calvin Klein. And uh, here we are pretty much all teared up because my wife wrote the vows, and they're really good. And so then after that, they went across the street, bought me a gym membership, and then they, and then we drove down to uh we drove down well it was on Lake Huron. We lived off of Northern Michigan and off of Lake Huron. I won't say the town, but it's beautiful, just absolutely gorgeous little town. It's almost like 1950 here still. And then I uh, we went to this really secluded little park, and then my cousin, who's a man of faith, baptized me in in Lake Huron. The water it had been the hottest summer like on record so the water was like 90 degrees so it was like it wasn't it was a little bit cold but not really you know compared to this you know the the air was probably 95 and humid you walked in the water it was like 88 degrees and this felt good you know think about it i had been dreaming about that for 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 all these years 15 do you know how good it felt to walk into that beautiful warm crystal clear blue warm water and just collapse into the water and like when you go under water and you're just laying there kind of in the bottom it's like you're back in the womb you know what i'm saying it's 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 like you're it's quiet and you're back in the womb and all that chaos of prison all that 
craziness and filth and loud and noise and idiots and, that. and like it all just washed off of me man and it just kept coming up for air and then laying down off of me and so then i went and went over there and got baptized i think i got baptized first but they they had a hard time getting me out of that water i remember that they're like all right we gotta go to dinner we gotta get going i'm like and i'm like all right man just let me splash around in this water some more there's a bunch of videos of me and pictures of me but i love it man and after that day i started my life with my wife and we have taken a lot of crazy adventures, man. We have all over Michigan. Like there's some of those beautiful places you ever see is in Michigan. We didn't live in Missouri for a year in the Ozarks. We had our own little mountain. But up in the northern Michigan, what we started doing after that was just taking these trips, like these five to seven day long trips, camping trips, exploring the UP, Upper Peninsula for trout rivers. Cause I'm a huge trout fisherman. That's what I do. It's my passion in life is trout fishing and deer hunting. And so outside with writing too, of course, but anyways they uh that's me and my wife my wife became my my best friend and my navigator when it comes to when we're up there so what she does is find spots on a map and 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 a gps or whatever and then like gets us there in her car she got a badass little ford escape that's just amazing and then we just go out in the woods like miles 20 30 miles back in these woods on these two track roads find a little creek that you know passes under over under bridge and i go there and fish and catch big ass brook trout man that's what i do that's fucking cool man it's always it's always awesome to see people who come out of those situations on top, man, and don't decide to go back into the same scenario and ended up end up in the fucking cycle. No, I'm not. I, would not, I decided that would not be me from the very beginning, and so I was focused in these books, and the books have created the life that I have now. I live in 20 acres on a nice little renovated farmhouse up in northern Michigan, in the middle of nowhere. I got four chickens, four cats. I got, um, you know, deer, just managing my property for deer is a lot of work, and, but it's insane. I have so many deer on this property. It's just unbelievable. I really lucked up. And then you know, anyway, so, so the life that I have is, is I, I love the life that I have. So that's why I would never go back or do anything like I did in the past. that would send me back nothing. I did my parole, two years of parole. Boom, I'm done. I'm gone. You know, and just now I'm going in five years home and, um, yeah, and then my books, you know, I'm always hustling, but it's, you know, it's my job is to push my books, sell my books, make content for YouTube, you know, do shows like this. It's all, uh, all of it is very positive. I'm saying is, like you said, you know, I try to be a positive beacon of light for people who might have gone down the wrong path and are thinking about going back or people who are on the wrong path now and don't think they can get back. And you look at me and say, dude, man, look at the stuff that this guy freaking doing, you know, and, and, Maybe I should reevaluate, you know, where my faith is. Reevaluate, you know, what I'm doing with my life because guy can you you listen to some of my YouTube videos and you're like, this guy was not a good guy. He was a horrible guy. Like he's a freaking, it was a straight gangster back in the day. And now, you know, I'm a religious man. I'm a Christian man. I'm I'm very friendly and nicest guy you'll ever meet to everybody. I mean, super. I don't even curse. So I mean, I mean, try not to. We usually almost never, almost never curse. And so, I mean, that's just who I am today. So yeah. It's, People can break the cycle. I've definitely proven that. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of your YouTube channel and your books and stuff, and I'll make it easy for the listeners as well in the episode description. I'll put links to all this stuff. But tell everybody about uh, your YouTube and your books and where they can find them. My YouTube is Gunner Detroit. So if you search Gunner Detroit, even in Safari, I'm sure YouTube will come up. But if you go to YouTube, just Gunner Detroit. I have two different shows. I have one called My Thing, Tales of a Reformed Gangster. And I got like 178 shows right now, I think. And then I also have a shorter series of 16 episodes called Off the Cuffs. So it's 
off the cuffs, which is basically my adventure of living off the grid with my wife for six months in the middle of the wilderness on a private lake with our cats, trying to manage our careers. I got bitten by a pine martin. We do a bunch of adventures like trout fishing and stuff. But I mean, the whole thing, you think about no running water, no electricity. It's funny, dude. It's a funny little series. If you watch it, it's hilarious, man. Forget the crap that I do and say and stuff that we need. And you'll see. It's funny. But anyway, so I got that on YouTube. Then I, I, I also own Our Thing Apparel, Our O-U-R, thingapparel.com. Um, it's a loosely gangster and themed or inspired clothing line that sells everything from tracksuits to duffel bags and jackets and gym bags and anything anything you can think of, hats. Um, we have 31 designs, some more gangster than others. Some are just kind of like, anyways, the reason it's called Our Thing. If you don't know who La Cosa Nostra is, I'm sure you do, Justin. Yeah, for sure. Translated into English means Our Thing. So I own that. So check, make sure you check out that. And my website is Gunner Detroit also. So you're going to check out my website. It's where you can read, find out my books are. Um, and there's links to my books. There's links to some other things I've written, short stories I've written called The Limbum Chronicles, The Syndicate, The King Chronicles, which are based on characters uh, and stories based on from my novel. There's teasers for my novels. They're good. They're really good. People love them. So my novels are To Be a King, Volume 1 and 2. You can get them on Amazon. Or sign copies from my from my apparel website on the homepage is a that's a button that just says sign copies to be a king. And so what else I got going? And I think there's an Instagram is Gunner Detroit. So check that out. And my Facebook is author Gunner Allen Limbloom, because my personal one's maxed out. But so just go to author Gunner Limb. Anyway, I, I hope that everybody will go ahead and follow me. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. And then I'll post all links uh, in the episode description. And uh, when I go to post this episode on different social media and shit, I'll have all that as well so people can find you. And your wife actually started a podcast, right? Audio Diary of a Prisoner's Wife. Yeah. Well, this is what this is actually. So her her diary she had it the whole thing waiting for me but this is just the months leading up to and i got out of prison and then when i get out of prison so everything i was telling you about you get to hear about from her and her perspective as she was preparing a, a world life for me to get home and and encountered some obstacles and some things like that so and and then you also get the part where i'm home too so it's pretty it is it is actually pretty interesting when i listen to it, i'm like wow i can see why people are actually liking this that's awesome dude well, I appreciate you coming on, dude, and you're welcome back anytime. And hopefully here, uh, for my listeners who enjoyed this, go check out his YouTube. He's got all kinds of stuff on there, and um, hopefully he'll be having a podcast here pretty soon as well. We're going to try to work on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I get this a lot from a from YouTube channel. So many people say this. They're like, dude, you are the hidden gem on, on YouTube. He's like, you, your show is the freaking one. Why don't you have you know 500,000 subscribers? I don't know. I hear that all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know either. Maybe <laughs> it's the algorithm or maybe I don't. But they're always like, your content is so good that you know I have people who tell me they binge watch it. They put it on. They have the, the premium where they just let it roll for like eight hours at work and listen to me talk the whole their whole day at work. They just listen to me eight hours. I'm like, it's crazy. So there's a lot of, I have some crazy ass stories in there and some not as crazy as others. Some are just crazy things that I think people can relate to. Like my, just things that may have happened to me, but then kind of spiral out of control and other rest of the world looks, yeah, that almost happened to me or that did happen to me or I can get it. I just, then you see my life is usually a little more extreme than others, but, but anyways, yeah, you get it. I get it. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you coming on, man and taking the time out. And I know, 
you want to go enjoy the day with your wife, and I actually yeah. got to go enjoy the day with my two little Hellspawn children. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy, have fun. Thanks yeah. for having me on, man. I appreciate uh, no it. No problem, dude. And uh, yeah, I'll help you any way I can, dude, with that podcast thing. And keep in touch, dude. Oh, thank you. So, so with that goes, do you want me to text you on that or email you on that or? Yeah, for sure. No, just text me, man. You're good, dude. You can call if you need to okay. or anything like that, dude. Just get a hold of me and we can fucking start going through the process and shit like that and get you all right. Thank you, man. Dude. I really appreciate that. I mean, I'm not, ah, I'm no just problem, not savvy man. in that regard. So I'll call, I'll probably call you Tuesday, Wednesday, but I will for sure. Yeah, no problem, man. I'll talk to you then. All right, man. Have a good day. Yeah, you too, bro. All right. And again, this episode was brought to you by Stereo App. I answer questions on there. I go deeper with details on certain things that I've covered on the podcast. Question I have for you guys is what do you guys think of the Delphi murders and why they haven't been solved? That is a fucking great question because I live about an hour and a half away from Delphi and I actually went to the location about two weeks after it happened. My opinion is that see that's how easy it is it's pretty awesome i really suggest you download it and like i said you can join me live every sunday 7 p.m eastern time get in on the conversation with me love to hear from you go to stereo.com slash mc podcast just download the stereo app and find me at mc podcast and again this episode was brought to you by stereo app I answer questions on there. I go deeper with details on certain things that I've covered on the podcast. The question I have for you guys is what do you guys think of the Delphi murders and why they haven't been solved? That is a fucking great question because I live about an hour and a half away from Delphi and I actually went to the location about two weeks after it happened. My opinion is that See, that's how easy it is. It's pretty awesome. I really suggest you download it. And like I said, you can join me live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Get in on the conversation with me. Love to hear from you. Go to Stereo.com slash MC Podcast. Just download the Stereo app and find me at MC Podcast. <laughs>